Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're joined today by Paul Cuff, a film historian uh, and one of the foremost experts on uh, Abelgance and particularly Abelgance's Napoleon and Napoleon in uh, his many forms on screen and the author of A Revolution for the Screen, Abelgance's Napoleon. And we've seen uh, the new Napoleon directed by Ridley Scott. So it's an opportunity to speak to someone who's an expert on one of the great versions of it and see how it compares and that sort of thing. Hello, Paul. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. I was really curious uh, to know your opinion on this version of Napoleon. But actually, maybe you can start by just telling us of your interest in Napoleon in cinema. (laughs) Sure. I I mean, I I have to say, uh, Napoleon by Ebel Gans, the 1927 film, is a film that found me. Uh, I wasn't looking for it. I didn't know it existed. Uh, a friend of mine happened to get tickets for the screening in 2004 and took me along. And when I saw it, I thought, where has this been all my life? And it, it, it kind of connected to some part of me that was kind of longing for this object, but didn't know it existed in the world. Uh, but I should say also that uh, as a child, I was obsessed with Napoleon, right. the historical figure. Uh, I collected small plastic figurines of Napoleon's armies and fought battles uh, on a a miniature snooker table, and I set it up at home, uh, and I kind of devoured particularly books of uh, uniforms of the period, because I loved the uniforms, and I read everything I could on the battles and campaigns and lives. Uh, So I was a sort of a Napoleon nut quite young, and then it's sort of my interest sort of faded away a bit, and uh, cinema came into my life. Uh, and so when I saw the Gans film, all my kind of previous interests kind of beautifully coincided with this newfound uh, object of miraculous wonder that is uh, Napoleon veut par Abel Gans, to give it its full title, Abel Gans's Napoleon. Um, but I should also mention the fact that I'd sort of in between my childhood love and seeing Napoleon, I also... Uh, watched quite a lot of other films about Napoleon or set in the Napoleonic period. So uh, particularly I'm thinking of the Sergei Bondarchuk, War and Peace, uh-huh. four films made in the mid-late 60s in uh, Soviet Russia. Uh, and also the same director's film Waterloo with Rod Steiger as Napoleon and Christopher Plummer as uh, Wellington. Uh, and then more recently, actually, I've ended up watching the Sasha Guitry 1955 film, also called Just Napoleon. Uh, and I've seen Antoine de Con, who was, uh, as most people in Britain know him as Euro Trash, yeah. the host thereof. He's also a film director. He made a film called Monsieur N, uh, which is sort of partially inspired by a novel, uh, the author of which I've forgotten. But essentially, it's about uh, Napoleon on St. Helena. Um, I've also seen Ridley Scott's Napoleonic era set film, The Duelists, which I think is one of his first mm. features or one of his breakout, one of his, one of his first it's features. First, yes. It is first. Um, uh, what else? I was trying to think. If I was trying to think after I'd seen the Ridley Scott one, how many other ones I'd seen, but kind of enough to get a good kind of mm. <laughs> flavour of this sort of strange subgenre of the historical film or the historical biopic or the historical epic or uh, stuff related to Napoleon. So, I, between all of my various obsessions across my life, I'm reasonably well placed or possibly spectacularly badly placed to watch Ridley Scott's film and have <laughs> some sort of opinion on it. Yeah. Um, I, there's also the Brando version, Desiree, I think. Which I've not seen. I yeah. think it's one of the main, the famous ones I've not seen. Yeah. And also, uh, is it Maria Walenska with Garbo, with Charles Boyer playing 
Napoleon. Oh gosh, that's the other one I've not seen. Yeah, yes, I <laughs> again, it's strange. The ones I've not seen tend to be the ones which are more about the romantic Napoleon. Yes, or his. It's kind of more it's kind of melodramas rather than kind of historical epics. I think my my kind of crude childish self likes big things and blowing up <laughs> and cannons and smoke and uh, spectacle on a huge scale. So those are the kinds of films that attracted me as a, a child and. I mean, Gans's film is much more than that, but also the, the the spectacle of it. It is the most spectacular in many ways of all the kind of Napoleonic films. Yeah. Uh, and again, I, from the advertising of the Scott one, that seems to be, at least in part, how it is selling itself, mm. uh, amongst other things. I, I think uh, we're not going to have too much of a comparison with the Gans film because sure. it's so long since I've seen it. Mike hasn't seen it. And besides, it's just an incomparable work of art, really. So there's almost kind of like, you know, not too much point in drawing a direct comparison throughout the film. Yes. But actually, before we start talking about Ridley Scott, I would like you just to, to, to tell us about, you know, some of the achievements of, of that extraordinary version. Just so we have that sure. loosely in mind. Well, so I, to start with, perhaps it's worth saying, firstly, the title of the film, as I said, is Napoleon vu par Abelgance. So it's usually translated as Abelgance is Napoleon, but actually more literally, I think, and more interestingly, you would translate it as Napoleon seen through Abelgance. Mm-hmm. So it is both history, Napoleon, and it is also Abelgance giving you a kind of subjective vision of Napoleon. And his aim was to show the young Napoleon up until kind of the very kind of first military campaign he got involved with. Uh, and the film ends in 1796. So just as he's starting his kind of, um, his kind of rise to, to real fame. And uh, Gans originally wanted to make six films spanning the whole of Napoleon's life. He got two thirds of the way through his first screenplay and spent the money for the entire series and ended up with a film that was 10 hours long. Mm. Uh, so it was kind of this unbelievably um, elaborate and kind of madly grandiose vision, which he never realised. I mean, he made, as I say, the other thing I've seen is all the other films that Gauss made after Napoleon, which were either remakes and reworkings of the material of the first one, or, um, I mean, all of them are increasingly mad and awful and chaotic I mean, um, until 1970 when he made his kind of final reworking, which uses footage from all his previous versions into a kind of very awful, terrible kind of uh, four-hour concoction at the end of his life when he's reflecting back on his own films. But in the 1920s, he wanted to make uh, a, a, the whole span of uh, Napoleon's life and he would kind of have different actors for each of the films. So he would, it wouldn't just be one actor kind of being made to look old. It would be kind of older actors at each stage. And in the first film, essentially the, the first episode of Six, which is the one, the only one he ended up making as he in something like the form he wanted to, uh, he wanted his vision was to show that uh, Napoleon was the last in a long line of idealist Republicans, the first of whom was Jesus Christ. Mm. <laughs> and th- those are Gans's words. So that is his mission statement. <laughs> that is his kind of his thesis that uh, N- Napoleon should have been the savior of not just France, but Europe, and ultimately kind of the ideal, which was the universal republic. So all kings and kingdoms and empires kind of just uh, demolished and a kind of universal kind of fraternity declared across the entire world. That was Gauss's vision for the future. He wanted to involve the League of Nations and actually create this in some sense in reality through cinema by making kind of people 
realized that their own kind of nationhood and uh, individuality was uh, kind of meaningless unless we embraced one another across borders, nations, and so forth. And so all of this kind of mentality went into his film about Napoleon and he filled it with every conceivable form of uh, camera work and editing. Uh, and it's got kind of the most ludicrously complex montages which end up with single frame cutting to kind of hurl you into the past to make you feel it. It has what we, for the sake of ease, call handheld camera work. But of course, the cameras being hand-cracked were so massive, he couldn't hold them by hands. They're chest mounted on a cuirass that the cameraman walked around to these incredibly heavy things. Uh, he built uh, steam-powered motors to put cameras on horseback, so you have the perspective of the horses going along. He kind of uh, put a camera on a massive pendulum swing so it could swoop over his extras to give you the perspective of a metaphor of a wave mm. and uh, multiple superimpositions. And then the final sequence is uh, split screen, so three 35mm cameras synced up side by side to give you uh, either a panoramic view of like a... It's twice as wide as modern widescreen. It's four to one, the ratio, as opposed to 2.35 to one or whatever. Um, but also superimposition, rapid cutting, and different uh, views across your three screens. So it is the single most ambitious film, I think, ever made mm. technically still. And it's still uh, just an astonishing, mind-alteringly wonderful experience to watch, which I... Oh goodness! I've even I've you know I've I've done the commentary for the DVD of it, but I I sort of I almost don't want anyone to see the film for the first time at home. No. You have to see it live because it's you simply cannot replicate the experience of seeing it live at home. Yes. You know, and I I first saw this and it, it 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 kind of it altered my conception of what cinema was and could be. And the fact this was made, you know, the best part of a hundred years ago is just the maddest thing mm -hmm. that cinema is still not up to what Gans thought it should be doing. A hundred years ago. Yeah, we should say it's 1927. Uh, I don't think we've mentioned the year for anyone who doesn't know. It's very early, particularly <laughs> for something so ambitious. It's also had an incredible afterlife, hasn't it? Because, I mean, I remember the... Um, did it have a, a Francis Ford Coppola... Uh, 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 a Coppola uh, score initially? Or was it just uh, produced by Coppola, the release in the 80s? Which is when uh, I... The release in the, the US was, yes, um, it was kind of sponsored by him and his, his father wrote the music. His father it had already wrote been, music, right. Yeah, it's, it had already been restored by Kevin Brownlow and others um, in the UK. And then when it went to America, it was cut down and released through Coppola's Zodrip Studios and then Universal. Mm. Uh, and there's, God knows, there's a whole, <laughs> there's a whole legal saga, which we won't go into, mm. around the various different versions of it. But yes, it's, um, and there is currently, we should say, a new. Uh, Cinematique Francaise uh, restoration, which will be even longer than the longest version previously. Right. So it's estimated up to, like, I'm not sure what the official runtime is yet. They've, you know, it's, my God, it's been in the it, years and years and years. And every single year for the last like five, no, nearly 10 years, they said, oh, next year, next yeah. year. And they've just said again, oh, next year. Right. So supposedly July 24, uh, it's going to be premiered at the Cinema, Cinematique Francaise. Fantastic. Um, I will believe it when it happens because <laughs> they've said this about six times already. I, 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 but I, it's going to be astonishing, whatever it is. So it, yes, its afterlife keeps going. It's a film that you know. I mean, even when they found six and a half hours of it, originally it was nearly ten hours. The the version Gauls first showed, well, you know, he showed a four hour version, which was a kind of not quite a rough cut, but like a well, here's like a, a four hour trailer mm. for the film <laughs> that I want, and then he showed the kind of the unadulterated ten hour version, and then. Um, Yes, anyone interested should read Kevin Brownlow's history of the film because it's an unbelievably complex 
ludicrous saga. Mm. I mean, the film itself sort of becomes synonymous with a, a cinematic ambition, which is itself Napoleonic mm. in its kind of hubris mm. and, and and scope. Um, so yes, it is a, a an extraordinary cultural artifact. So that said, now what did you think of this Ridley Scott book? <laughs> you said you're uh, uniquely badly placed to appreciate it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what do you mean um, by that? Because, well, I mean, I, I don't think you can make a film called Napoleon, just Napoleon, without inevitably kind of making yourself comparable or kind of complicit with the other versions of his life. I don't think you can make a film about it and not expect to be compared to previous versions of it. Um, and to start with the positive, I thought the uniforms of the soldiers were wonderful <laughs> and some the, re the research done into making sure they were wearing the right kinds of hats for the different eras of battle was marvellous one of the problems with the Bondarchuk from the 60s is they're wearing shakos in 1805 when they had the bicons in 1805 as everyone should know um, but this film they wear the right hats uh, and the uniforms are lovely and you know but I wished a scintilla of the effort put into the research for those uniforms had been put into the script and the direction mm. and the performances because I thought I, 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 it was terrible. I, I had <laughs> such a bad time. I, I, th I thought that I, it was one of those scripts where you thought that like every single line was like a placeholder for the line that they put in when they, they worked out what they wanted the line to be. And every single bit of performance is like, okay, we'll, we'll just do this one. We'll just do that. We'll just do a run through. Yeah. We'll just do a run through. Yeah. You, you play it how you want and we'll, we'll, we'll work on it. But no one had ever come back and worked on it. And no one had ever come back and put like the actual lines back in. I, 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 You're a flabbergast. I, 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 yes. Well, we, we had a, about an hour in, maybe. Uh, we kind of turned to each other. I said to you, what do you think of it so far? And you said, um, I, Jose, this is, um, you felt like transitions were happening quickly. You know, the, the falling yes. into love with Josephine happened very quickly. We didn't really mm. see it. And I suggested it felt like um, uh, everything was happening in, as you said, kind of in placeholders. Like this is the, this is the symbolic version of just getting through his life very quickly. I mean, so, so my overall view actually is that <laughs> I didn't look at my watch once, which, mm. you know, in a film that is two hours and 40 minutes long, is its own kind of accomplishment. So I don't want to lose sight of that because, yeah. you know, it's too easy to talk about all the problems that the film has. And, you know, in, in some things we agree, right? Like, I, I think either there's a problem with the script or, you know, this thing that I was talking about, that transitions that you really don't see, you know, the process of Napoleon becoming Napoleon. You don't see the process of this unfolding relationship with Josephine. I, I actually I was very unclear about the initial attraction and, you know, how yeah. one thing led to another, you know, if that's uh, the part of the narrative that's taken on, and it is, it 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 should have been uh, denser, we should have had more information on it, and so on. So, so I, I agree with that. Um, but, you know, there is something about a film this length, where you don't look at your watch once, that I think is, I don't want to dismiss it. I've seen actually, so many reviews now that are so dismissive of the film, you know, and uh, it, it puzzles me in a way because I do think, I, I remember Victor Perkins saying, the worst thing you can do is think that you're smarter than the film. The film is always, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, the film is always smarter than you. Yeah, even dumb films because of just the collective aspect of who's involved in it. So, 
you know, just because you can't see some things doesn't mean they're not there, right? You know, so, so you know, this is Ridley Scott, after all. He's made an entertaining film. Yeah. So then now, you know, why is it arguably, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see what you think, Mike, but in my view, merely an entertaining film? Or did you not find mm-hmm. it entertaining? Were, were you just too annoyed with it to find it even entertaining? Well, no, I mean... I have to agree. I didn't look at my watch, my watch once either. And I, I have to say, I mean, I, I was quite in one, on one, on a very basic level. I was perfectly happy to sit there for two hours and forty. I didn't feel fidgety. I just, you know, it kept moving. Mm. But at the same time, inside my skull, my mind was just one, like just mm. started rotating around, doing a lot of the work that the film should have been doing sure. for me. Um. And kind of filling in the gaps and trying to work out also. It's I mean it is. It is bad history, and but I don't think that's a problem with any film. I absolutely no. I don't mind I don't mind bizarre accents. I don't mind any. I mean all of that is kind of irrelevant for the film. I don't think any of that is important. No. But if you're going to change it, you should be doing it for a definite purpose to make it dramatically for the sake of the film work better in some way i think and i i it, i don't think it was doing that i don't know if we could just spend a moment on that paul and, and sorry mike we'll get back to you but happy happy to let this <laughs> i'm not a napoleon expert by any means can't continue <laughs> one of the things that's been, that has been really annoying was that kind of supercilious superior kind of downgrading of the film oh you know this didn't happen and this didn't happen and there was nowhere near the pyramids and and you do think, who cares? I mean, you know, when you talk about von Sternberg's The Scarlet Empress, is the first thing that comes to your mind that it wasn't historically accurate? No, <laughs> it's absurd as an argument, right? Like, I think it really is. You're not making a yeah. documentary about it. It is a fiction film. Uh, and we're used to the conventions of a fiction film. We expect some accuracy, right? Like, you know, you want to see a period kind of uh, evoked. But actually, you know, you're... The, the audience is not a historian uh, and it's not going to be judging you on, you know, whether the right uniforms were used. Though obviously there'll be a small proportion who know those <laughs> uniforms, who will. But most of us don't know, don't care, right? So, uh, you know, the, the historicist argument, I think, is a, a, a truly banal one, which I'm shocked, you know, that a hundred years after one thought this argument had been responded to that it still periodically crops up yeah mm. as as it does in this instance i think yeah um, yes absolutely i mean i would argue that it's 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 uh historically accurate enough not to take you out of the narrative yes. that it sets up for itself right mm. um yeah so now mike your response well, just... on, on the press tour just on that point of historicity on the press tour which has been ridiculously entertaining ridley scott has been batting away the accusations of historical inaccuracy <laughs> by saying when historians say to me you know this is inaccurate i go were you there well then fuck off <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and before the film began i was kind of thinking how can the film possibly be as entertaining as everything ridley scott's been saying <laughs> in promoting the film um and and he also talked about you know he was accused uh, particularly of a historicity with the scene where Napoleon uh, fires cannons upon the pyramids in Egypt that you alluded mm. to. Um, and he said, quite simply, this is a way of very quickly telling the audience that he took over Egypt, took Egypt, um, which, you know, I, I, which, uh, which to some extent, for me. well, it goes to that point that, I, that we were both <laughs> sort of suggesting of him telling the story with kind of economy and symbolism to suggest things that he's not fully fleshing out. Um, which mm. is not necessarily that that point necessarily needs to be fleshed out all that much. 
um, it was more important, I think, than the case of you know, performing for Josephine and so on. Um, when it comes to my overall uh, experience in the cinema, I was a bit fidgety. Um, I did check my watch. Um, I didn't find the film that compelling. Um, and I could tell that it wasn't just like my mood because when it got to uh, the battle scene, um, oh, well, you're bit, I can't remember which battle it was, but it's the one where they end up um, uh, sinking everybody in the ice, which I understand uh, is... Austerlitz. Auster, which I understand itself is um, uh, an anachronism, I think. Um, the, not an anachronism, I, I, what's the word? Um, apocryphal, if that's right. Well, it's... Uh... During the retreat, the Austro-Russian army did uh, have to navigate frozen rivers, and there was a lot of difficulty extricating themselves from it. Uh, right. So it, it 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 is it is factually based, even if it is not as it. But the idea of him kind of trapping them, you know, luring them into that—is mm. that the? That's what I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, the, the the Austerlitz in the film has very very little to do with the real Austerlitz. Right. Uh, in it, it was the Austerlitz is famous for the sunlight of Austerlitz because it was a foggy battlefield which helped Napoleon mask his troop positions and kid the Russians into making a wrong move and then he therefore kind of broke their center and scattered their forces and as he was doing so the fog lifted and the sun rose over the mountains in the background and everyone the whole army remembered this kind of absolutely symbolic vision it's the sunlight of Austerlitz that is what it's famous for okay much more than anything else so they yeah. So, right. so the sunlight is not what's shown in the film, but the elements of no. the fog and making them mm. uh, uh, the, the 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 army uh, performing a wrong move and being taken advantage of yes. that, yeah. that that is incorporated into that scene. But what I could tell, you know, that, that it wasn't just my mood, is that during that scene I was completely engaged. You know, the, the mm. build up to that battle, seeing everyone kind of move into position, where's everything going to go. I was I was hooked, and the film has moments like that. I, you know, I was pretty much hooked throughout um, Waterloo as well. Um, I think you know those really really worked for me, which is why pretty much everything else not working for me, I think, speaks to well, there's just something not working in the film. You know, I think mm-hmm. there is a lack of. I I kind of because I don't you know I know the figure of Napoleon, but I I. I never really studied him by any means. I don't know all that much about him. And it's not like I went into this film expecting to learn, um, especially given all that context from the press interviews <laughs> about, about this is all, you know, we just made this up. But, um, but I think it's important because for me, the central failure of the film is that you don't know who Napoleon is. This is it. Yes. I mean, yeah. I don't even yeah. know essentially what his plans are what his intentions are he talks about wanting peace and there's there's a kind of irony in the way that peace is coming through endless war um but is it that he wants to take over the world what does he actually want i get i get very little idea of that through the film well i think it's it's even more complicated than that because you know partly because they cast joaquin phoenix who must be 50 now you don't get a sense of the young napoleon how did how did a young corsican minor nobleman become Napoleon, right? Yeah. And then what were his wishes and desires when, when, yeah, in, in, I don't get a sense of that. Did you, Paul? No, I, I think that's, you know, I mean, the, the, none of the history matters at all if you have a central thesis of your own mm. to propel the narrative, to propel the script, the story, everything. 
and that's what this film didn't have. So, I mean, it, you know, it, it, it keeps moving along, but at the same time, you don't know what it is that's propelling you forward other than the fact that, you know, time must pass and we've got to cover this whole lifespan. Mm. And I, I, uh, I've... Um, I need to get rid of my cookies so I can therefore get my second free New Yorker article of the month or whatever, so I can go back and reread an article, which means that there was a piece essentially, I, th I think it was kind of um, about Ridley Scott and Joaquin Phoenix, kind of like 48 hours before things began. Joaquin Phoenix said, I don't know who this character is. Can we please meet and go through it again? And that's what the script feels like. They're like mm. It went into production without anyone quite knowing what your thesis of the film was. What is the point of the film? What is your view on Napoleon? I mean, you can make a, you know, a very simple Napoleon was a bad man. He had, you know, <laughs> millions of people died as a result of his actions quite easily. Or you can have the Gaussian view where you have, well, here is the kind of the, the tragic hero who was born to kind of have a, you know, a profound effect on human history, but was kind of, you know, ended up in a cycle of wars and became his own kind of worst enemy. Mm. But this film didn't have either. And I was particularly when the text appears at the end with a kind of body count yes. for the wars, I'm thinking, well, what are you saying? Are we are we supposed to think, how is this relating to what we have just seen? Is this a kind of like, kind of, ah, and now my point is he was a bad man. Mm. Or I, I don't understand. There's, the film does not give you in, enough information, and particularly Phoenix's performance does not give you enough information to go on as to how we're supposed to take Napoleon. I, there's, mm. He is not a coherent, consistent character either to like or dislike. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. It's an odd performance because at the very beginning, the very first time we see him in the film where he turns his head, yeah, you think, oh my God, that is, you know, that's my idea of Napoleon anyway, <laughs> right? But he's such a, he's such an odd and, and very interesting and sometimes compelling actor. But, but he, he's always a bit distant. I never felt in this film that you actually got into his head at all, right? Which is a real problem because, you know, Napoleon is so iconic that, you know, a large part of a European audience will will know about him, will know the, you know, the loose outlines of the life, will know the hat and the face. Yes. What you want to know is the person, what actually is going on inside that head. And actually, I think uh, Phoenix's performance never lets you in. And I think the other problem, I mean, again, I would be absolutely fine with a film which gave you an absolute, a complete distance between you and Napoleon. If the point of Napoleon was he was in some way inhuman, that in itself is a kind of a thesis which you could make something of. Sure. I mean, a part of um, Gauss's film is your is Napoleon's character's journey is from, you know, someone who falls in love, who has lots of feelings, who eventually becomes more and more detached from human life because he becomes a kind of symbol of himself. He becomes the hat, the silhouette. Mm -hmm. He he goes from being, and this is a distinction lots of uh, writers and historians have made, you know, since the 19th century onwards, between Bonaparte, the young man, and Napoleon, the emperor, mm -hmm. the man who betrayed the principles of Bonaparte. Mm -hmm. So you can have that journey to this kind of person who is somehow detached from his kind of real human self. So again, a film which was kind of just showing you that kind of distant kind of inhuman Napoleon would be interesting. But this film isn't doing that either. It's giving you a kind of a lots of kind of scenes of his intimate life, and yet you don't get any sense of intimacy. Mm. And it's, yeah, it it it, 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 it was a really awkward performance. Mm. There were lots of scenes which it was kind of going for humour, which mm. I found quite awkward. I mean, there were a couple of 
I did laugh at a couple of points. I love the bit where he says, uh, "Destiny has brought me this lamb chop." Mm, yeah. I thought that, uh, I, and I wish there'd been kind of more scenes where the comedy kind of like the like the jokes landed. Mm. But so often it was just a really awkward, like it was searching for a way into the character, literally on screen. Yes. With a, you didn't go into the film with a already with a kind of a character fully formed, and it, at the end of the film, you know, he quite literally just topples out of frame, and that's mm. it. And you you still don't know him. You still don't have a view on him. You still don't know what the film's view on him is. Yes. And that's a, a really dissatisfying way to, to leave a film. Mm. What did you make of Josephine? Uh, it's Vanessa Kirby, yes. isn't it? And this, I, 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 cause it was going to be Jodie Comer um, in the original casting. Yes. Cause, um, and then she dropped out for whatever reason. Um, and again, I... She did her best with the script, but I found her performance quite awkward as well, particularly the bit where they would, um, the divorce ceremony, where she was sort of laughing at the line she was being asked to read. And it looked, the whole scene was so awkward, but not in a deliberately awkward way. It was just like, right, this is my first take of the scene. I'll do some things and we'll we'll go from there. But that was Mm. it. Uh, I mean, I don't want to bring up history, but also my issue with Waking Phoenix being, I think it's 49, 50. Mm. And him being not really that much different physically, apart from his haircut and, and clothing across the film. Um, and of course, he was several years younger than Josephine in history, but he's a 50 year old man <laughs> throughout this film. And that the, the dynamics of the relationship don't quite work because the, the film does obey some of the laws in Napoleon being a kind of gauche outsider and she being a kind of, you know, well-to-do socialite who's had numerous previous sexual and romantic relationships, including a marriage and children. But he is an older man on screen. And it's it, it's the film never quite negotiates that adequately enough or it, it doesn't either ignore it well enough or deal with it well enough. It just sort of... Again, it it doesn't have a handle on what it's giving us, mm-hmm. and it was just, and I get the feeling, kind of, aside from the kind of battle sequences, that was supposed to be our kind of our through line through the film was their relationship, absolutely, and it was a real pro- and it was a real problem that it it was it never quite gelled into, a, okay, is this meant to be a real loving relationship that is kind of sullied by his ambitions, or is it not meant to be? Is it a kind of cynical arranged marriage, as it were, for the sake of mm-hmm. her, you know? keeping her place in society and kind of him using her connections to get promotion and so forth, which is absolutely how the relationship is used in other versions of his life on in cinema. Mm. There's a line, there's a line where she says, uh, you know, because he kind of humiliates her and says, says something like without, you know, without me, you're nothing. And then she turns the tables on him and says, without me, you're nothing. And I think that becomes the leitmotif of the film that actually as soon as a divorce happens, his career and his status and so on unravels, right? So mm. uh, so I think that the film does follow that line of without me, you're nothing. But actually, we're never shown why is he nothing. Without, what does she do for him that makes him, you know, win battles or, you know, win yeah. thrones? I mean, that aspect. The implication I took from that scene is it, it said there was a kind of transgression to it of the, the most important figure you know sort of this thug to some violent winning battle and so on but he's nothing without this woman but what what you say about her connection socially and and that sort of thing is not an impression i got at all from the film that if if uh, that's what she means by by that in some sense that's not what i got the, the, what i took from that was it's 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 the romantic thing is that i can make you weak mm-hmm. you know 
You know what I found most, uh, um, uh, uh, um, what took me out of the film the most upon the introduction of Josephine, and this is maybe to contradict myself earlier about historical accuracy, was her hairdo, right? I couldn't place that hairdo because it looked like she'd been sent to the guillotine or something, right? Like, you know, it was a very short haircut. And I didn't know whether it was meant to evoke that or that she'd been in prison or... Again, this is this is a perfect example of, of the people who do the costumes doing far more research than the film then uses or explains. Right. The reason is there at a survivor's ball, and the survivor's ball, you dressed as if you were on your way to the guillotine right. because you were celebrating the fact that you didn't go to the guillotine. So you had your hair cut short because that was the way they made sure the blade could get through the neck. You got all this elaborate hair out of the way. Right. They wore um, kind of very thin uh, red uh, ribbon around their necks to symbolize the red slice of the head. And all the people doing the costumes have done their bloody research and they know what all this means, so they dress everyone specifically, but neither the script nor the direction either explains it to us to say, hey, guys, this is what this means. Well, the script contradicts it because, you know, the film begins with Marie Antoinette and she's not with all her hair. Yes. So, you know. And again, I mean, I sh- the, you know, the opening scene also reminded me of uh, the Napoleonic film that Joaquin Phoenix is in that's better than this by a long way, which is Quills, uh-huh. uh, which is uh, uh, Philip Cow from, from uh, 2000. It has Geoffrey uh, uh, Rush and Kate Winslet. And it's a marvellous film, and it's about um, the Marquis de Sade. And so the first images of the film are kind of a woman's head of hair being brushed back with these kind of leather gloves, and she's kind of sighing, and it's this kind of close-up, and you think she's kind of being, you know, having a a marvellous time off camera. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it's pulled back, and you realise her head's being put in a guillotine. And then you watch her being cut off, and then you cut to de Sade watching from the window. And it's this perfect, that's how to use a guillotine sequence in a kind of an unusual way and make it kind of really disturbing and erotic and kind of, it's marvellous. And in that film, uh, Joaquin Phoenix plays the priest in charge of the asylum, who then falls in love with Kate Winslet, but she's killed. And then he kind of essentially has sex with her, her dead body. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's like, it's a film, it's a fictional film about de Sade's demise told in a manner akin to Dissard telling mm-hmm. it. The film is a kind of Dissardian take on Dissard. It's really wonderful. Fantastic screen death of Dissard. He chokes to death on a crucifix. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's so, that's, it's, it's wonderful, wonderful. And, and you know, I, I was thinking of that, um, again, it's like a, you know, how to use kind of a limited budget in a Napoleonic setting. It does have, Napoleon is in that film. He's played by Ron Cook. And the loads of uh, lovely, marvellous jokes of him sat on a throne with his legs kind of playing in the air because he's not tall enough for his legs to reach the ground. And, and you, there's like, you know, like he's on Napoleon in that film is on screen for 10 minutes, but you have an absolutely clear idea of who he is, what he stands for, visual jokes, iconography, everything, you know, jobs are good in 10 minutes, perfect. And yet the Scott film is two hours 40 and you'd never have that even as a kind of a joke on his iconography working consistently. I, I did think that... One of the successes for me in the film was the way that it looks. I don't know if if you agree, but actually I thought it was one of the best looking films that I've seen recently. And you can see that Scott and his cinematographer have a painterly eye. Um, And I was thinking, you know, just a, a, a random thought that it's so interesting because he does have like a painterly eye and he's reputed to do sketches, yeah, of everything, of every shot and so on. And yet, in a weird way, it's not a cinematic eye. Yeah, so uh, do you know what I mean? That, you know, he kind of films things 
in an interesting way, but it's always interesting kind of within the shot. It's not a kind of necessarily an inventive way of filming it. It's mm. just, you know, a kind of a painterly way of filming it. I don't know if you have any yes. views. Uh, I mean, I, again, I, I, it was, it was, it was very pretty and very good. I mean, I should say also that, um, uh, the Duelists, his his kind of his first Napoleonic film, mm. that is so, absolutely gorgeous to look at. I mean, it's again, it's a much smaller budget, but being you know, absolutely impeccably costumed. Uh, and again, it's essentially it's just two characters having duels across the Napoleonic period privately. So you don't have to have any battle mm. scenes at all. So you can spend lots of money just getting like two sets of costumes for two characters right across the film. And the, the, the beautiful, just uh, the kind of countryside, the settings, every was fabulous. I didn't think this film looked as good as that mm. in terms of landscapes and things. I thought there was... I, Again, I should also say I'm from the countryside, and so I can recognise seasons and times and places. I'm very sensitive to that on screen, and it bothers the hell out of me when you say, "Here is June 1815, and the trees don't have any leaves on, and it's clearly not fucking June on screen." And, it's, and when you when you put a, when you put a title on screen telling me it's June and it's clearly not June on screen, that's not history as such. That's literally just scene setting. That's kind of location. That's landscape, mm. etc. So I mean it. I, I didn't have a problem with the film, the way the film looked, but I, I, my memory of The Duelist is it was a much better looking film and had a much clearer sense of actually moving through the seasons mm. in the way that this film felt. It was cutting corners a lot. I feel like a lot of it was filmed either in early spring or end of year. And they they kind of had to cover like, you know, 25 years of narrative across multiple seasons. And they did it over quite a short stretch of time, filming quite quickly. Sure. Um, um, I mean, which is, you know, fantastic economical filmmaking, bravo, well done. But it, it, I feel like it shows in places. I did think it was a film that really showed its budget. So it's reputed to be between 130 and 200 million. And I was thinking, for me, how, how wonderful it was, you know, to see a film where it did look like it had hundreds of extras, if not thousands, yes. uh, rather than having CGI. And I felt it did make a difference in, in terms of how you know, everything moved and felt uh, to watch. Uh, and I did think it was very beautifully lit, actually. There were moments like, you know, like like the coronation scene, which is, is it a David painting? It's it's a famous yes. painting, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and I thought it evoked kind of like the richness of the oils and, the, you know, the colors, and you recognize the composition. There was something kind of very enthralling about it, actually, for me. The film is certainly making use of CGI, though, in those scenes. Though. I mean, no, I'm not doubting you know, absolutely. it. Absolutely. They'll, they'll, they'll have extras, and then CGI will give you a 1,000, 2,000 But more. it doesn't yeah. feel like little cartoons. It feels like people. No, so they must absolutely. have used a high degree yeah. of real people. And I I mean, one thing... I mean, I I, I, I should say at the outset, I, I absolutely love the Sergei Bondarchuk films from the 60s, and uh, Waterloo was 1970, 71. Uh for the War and Peace films, he had the entire Soviet Union working at his disposal to produce uh, uniforms. So he had 14 museums, I think it is, churning out, art, like giving him artifact, real artifacts. He had uh, between 12 and 13,000 extras, and they're all on screen. Wow. And you can tell, I mean, it's, I mean, he's got kind of cameras on wires going over these like miles and miles of battlefield carefully recreated with all the redoubts and things for the Battle of Borodino and he just lets the camera swoop over these literally thousands and thousands of fully uniformed 
people and guns and horses, and it's a, a, a just astonishing. And Waterloo had, I think, 10,000 extras. Again, Dino Durantes arranged arrange things, wink, wink, with the Soviet army, mm. so they would lend a helping hand. So it's 10,000 extras plus uh, lots of mannequins as well. And the one thing that's really bothered me with some, particularly with Waterloo, just just because it's Waterloo and just because there's a film called Waterloo, it's it's, it's a, you know it's one of the most famous battles in human history, and there are, there's so much iconography of the of the the battle in paintings, you know, panoramas. There's like 200 years worth of iconography mm. around the battle. Um, and for Bondarchuk's film, he makes sure that every single shot of his film is filled with people, like real, actual people, like terrifying amounts of smoke and explosive, and you know, horses visibly being like killed in stunts on camera. It's, you know, it's a over, overwhelmingly brilliant kind of logistical work of choreography. And so I was much less impressed with a few hundred people in a muddy field fighting <laughs> it out, and and the fact that in the background of all the shots, there's empty fields, empty fields, empty space, empty space, empty space. This was a, like, the battlefield was very small, and uh, it was, uh, I think, like 70,000 people versus 70,000, and then 50,000 more Prussians arrived. Yet this was literally, you could not move for people. The casualty rates were appalling. So I was much less impressed with the battle on that basis. And I, I you know, I know it's ultimately unfair to judge it by another film standard, but I have well, seen this before. I know what you mean, though. It didn't look all that big, Waterloo, in this. Yes, and it's particularly because at the end credits, he says, oh, you know, like 30,000 people died in one yeah. day. Well, I sure as hell didn't see 30,000 mm. people or even 300 people on screen. What, what battles are you describing? You've not given us mm. these titanic struggles. And so it, it's point about death rates and casualties and all the rest of it. We just haven't seen that. Mm. I mean, at the end of Waterloo, you get these marvellous kind of um, this kind of dark battlefield and he, essentially all of the extras now reappear as corpses mm. and he kind of pans and tracks them and you see that, oh my God, it's just, the camera keeps pulling back and it's just so many bodies and you think, okay, that is that is the aftermath. Mm. With this, it's just, you know, some text 20 minutes later. I'll say, I, so two things. I mean, I think first of all, you know, you're you're not just comparing films, you're, you're comparing like almost two different eras of a cinematic apparatus, right? Like, true, you know, true. So, yeah. so I think, you know, clearly in comparison to those, I grant you, you're right. I mean, I was talking more in comparison, you know, to the kinds of films that you see nowadays. I, I did feel the impact of the extras, mm. you know, uh, in yes. the film. Um, and I also liked the battle scenes, actually. I thought they were, you know, so again, I, I don't know if they're accurate or, you know, all of the dimensions that you're talking about. No, no they're, they're not accurate. No, no. <laughs> I'll, I'll, just put, I'll, just put, I'll just put that in there. They're, they're not accurate. So, so they're not accurate and, and they are missing, they are missing all the dimensions that you talked of uh, in the, how do you pronounce his name, the Russian director? Uh, Bondarchuk. I, I don't know if that's how you're supposed to pronounce it, but that's the, it is spelled B B Bondarchuk. Yeah. Bondarchuk. Those dimensions that you're describing are definitely not in this film. Yet, I did think that it moved well, and I did find it exciting. Mm. You know, There is a brutality to some of it that I really enjoy, which is quite surprising to see as well, actually. It's just in, like, I mean, the number of heads that came off in this film. But, like, <laughs> you know, and it's not just Marie Antoinette at the start of the, in the guillotine, but it's, like... Uh, 
I think it was in Waterloo, uh, a cannonball takes someone's head off in like the lower left of frame in a scene which has hundreds yes. of people. And I noticed it, you know, mm. and there's a flash of mm. red blood. And you go, wow, that just happened in the corner of the screen. Like it's a real, br-. you know, at the start um, when Napoleon rides into battle and his horse gets blown apart, you know. Yeah, uh, I thought that was great. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a real surprise because you don't see that so much with animals, you know, kind of brutality is what's humans mm. is one thing. You tend to see it um, relatively little with animals on screen. And, and so that was quite a shock and a kind of introduction to some of the things we would get we would be shown and also more to know i thought was interesting there's a particular thing with the british the way the british are are uh, portrayed i love rupert everett um yeah. I, I i i will second that <laughs> I, he knew exactly what sort of script this yeah. was yeah. and he, he gave that before and, <laughs> and it's very much a kind of he's, he stood there behind his troops sending them in and then we'll be home in time for tea sort of mm-hmm. thing um and there is there is a kind of there's a reservation i mean the the, the british are the only ones drumming during, you know, and, and the one guy gets taken out by a cannibal and the other drummer is still stood there, not doing anything, so that's his job. But then you get shots of, um, and it's only a few shots, but it's really down and dirty, just people on the ground mashing each other's faces in, like it's a real scrap, right? And there's a there's a big difference there between the kind of the honourable fighting and the reservation and the decorum and, you know, we, you've got a sniper with Napoleon in his sights and he says, don't shoot him. We don't do that. And then on the ground, you've got people just beating each other's faces and trying not to die. You know? Yes. I, 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 I that, that line is in Waterloo, the film Waterloo. Mm. Um, but it's, Christopher Plummer has his own marvelously kind of very cold, distant, polite performance. It, it, I, I mean, again, the, the, no one likes Waterloo, but I, I, I would defend it on so many levels. It's not a, a great film, and it has lots of rough edges and absurdities, but it is, it is quite marvelous. And I, I do love Plummer's performance in that. He, there's lots of that film has, you know, it has more time to devote to kind of Wellington and Napoleon as kind of as contrasting kind of characters. Uh, and who, of course, you know, again, well, famously, they never met. They met on the battlefield one time, and it kind of ended Napoleon's career. They didn't, you know, have tea on a boat afterwards. Mm. Um, and uh, Plummer's is a marvelously kind of kind of cool, cold character, but he also has compassion at the end. Uh, the, the Waterloo quotes a lot of kind of historical lines from the characters, and it's kind of it's even if it does take lots of liberties. Um, but at the battlefield at the end, Wellington is there just kind of walking slowly with his horse through these just fields of dead and mud. Uh, and it's this famous line, uh, next to a battle lost, the saddest thing is a battle won. Mm. And he's just looking at it. You get that kind of moment, which again, you you don't in the Scott mm. film. It's, it you know, it tries to do all of that just in a kind of, oh yes, here's some text, 28,000 people mm. dead. Okay, that's it. well done. Economic filmmaking again, but it's it doesn't make enough of it to make more of either the character of Wellington or the the aftermath of the battle. Uh, um, did it say twenty eight thousand in one day? I thought it said forty nine thousand in one day for Waterloo. Oh, I, I, just just I, a technical point, but that's all. Okay. <laughs> it was a lot. I, 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 I didn't I didn't get the brackets one day thing either because all the other battles were, were or most of the other battles mm. were one day apart from the you know the Russian campaign as a campaign yeah. as a as a whole. But, but anyway. what I took from that text at the end is you were saying you know, what are you supposed to get from it? Um, the three million dead. It just it comes across as a kind of surprise, I suppose, because you have seen wars and things, but you don't get that feeling of the scale of the of the death that he left in his wake of kind of what he produced. And it's really a sense of importance. This man was important. This is what he left. And then in the context of everything else, you're like, well, why is this the first time I'm feeling this? You know, sure, yes, the whole yes. film should have been getting me to feel this. So I think the film, to me, and I, yeah, I, 
it's a, it's a question for you. Is this a very British take on Napoleon? I was going to ask right? that. Because I thought, you know, in, uh, I mean, he affected all of Europe. I mean, he took over Spain, right, Napoleon. And which, which doesn't get a mention. Doesn't get a mention. Uh, but, you know, they're very mixed to a lot of people in Europe still to this day. Napoleon is a hero, right? He's, he's not just like this person who killed three million people the way that the film would have it. So, and, and I thought it was also weird because, you know, kind of in Europe, I think, uh, Napoleon is a life figure. Uh, uh, whereas actually the mar- its main market, which I imagine to be America, you know, I mean, obviously there was the, the uh, French-Canadian versus English kind of war in, in Canada, in what is now Canada. But aside from that, it didn't ripple very much, did it? So I can't say what an American audience what an American audience's stake in this story is. No. I think the only stake historically is the fact that Napoleon sold Louisiana, what is all like the whole of like, you sure. know, the mid-South of America to America, which had, you know, big repercussions, mm-hmm. but was ultimately, that was done through, <laughs> done through lawyers. Right. It was paperwork. It wasn't anything more than that. But yes, I, I don't, the trouble is, I don't know what opinion this film has about Napoleon in order to answer that mm-hmm. question to see if it's a very British view of it. Um, I mean, I would say I, I feel like Rupert Everett's performance is a very a wonderfully unsympathetic version of who the British mm-hmm. are, and you get the the ambassador earlier in the film who's also kind of he has no manners, mm-hmm. and it's a kind of all the like the you know the very few British kind of uh, commanders or kind of people you you see of a high rank are just sort of snooty caricatures. Mm. So I don't feel the film has any particular sympathy with Britain either way. It felt to me like self-deprecating humour, that stuff. I laughed at it. You know, I I recognised it as the joke about what we're like. Uh, But the joke about what the upper class are like. Yeah. Yeah, which I think is also different. So I think, you know, there is a a kind of... um, The upper class, the king, the ambassador and so on, are captured in a very affectionate way, in a way that the joke does land, that the character works, it worked with our audience anyway. But I'm thinking more just about the point of view on, you know, the character and the life. Yeah, which, to me, that ending makes it seem, well, that's kind of a very particular perspective on it. <laughs> yes, I, again, I, that was the impression I got from the ending, but I couldn't sort of reconcile that with what I... But with what I've been watching for mm. two hours forty, I mean, in the sense that it is, I mean, I, I, I would, I wouldn't say it was a sympathetic portrait of Napoleon. I mean, it's certainly not a kind of very kind of complex one. The politics of what's going on is very kind of sketchily kind of filled in. It gives you enough to kind of give a sort of sense of why he kind of kept on fighting, but not much more than that. I mean, all other versions that I can think of have much, do much more kind of legwork to give you much more of a grounding in a sense of what was going on and why he might be making these decisions, you know, for, for good or ultimately, you know, for, for catastrophic ill for everyone, essentially. Um, but I, so I, I would sort of say it is, I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly not a French perspective on Napoleon. <laughs> it probably is ultimately a British one in in the sense that it would much rather kind of tidy him away as a kind of a kind of chaotic autocrat mm. with you know kind of who was a, a grubby little figure who uh, you know did some pulled off miraculous feats of of strength and arms and all the rest of it. Um, but again, I I, I would. I find it very difficult to try and work out what this film's view of Napoleon mm. is. Other, I mean, it's simplistic, 
which is a kind of the British viewpoint of Napoleon. It is a very warped view of one who beat him, mm. two how much involvement we, I, the British, had in it, and three what he was trying to do or what how his actions in Europe have uh, their context in the place of Britain's actions. Say you know, fine, Napoleon, you know destroyed borders in Europe, how terrible he went to Egypt and conquered Egypt. And Well, who invaded Egypt afterwards? Mm. The mm. British. Who then invaded India? The British. Who conquered large parts of North America? The British. Who kept on slavery 30 years after this point? The mm. British. Who had an entire empire governed at gunpoint? The British. Apparently, you know, we don't look at that and say, okay, in that context, how do we view mm. Napoleon? In the same way, you know, the Russians who, you know, in the decades before Napoleon came to power, that they made their border something like kind of 500 miles further west than it was. They occupied the whole of Eastern Europe. But Catherine the Great and her successors are not known as disgusting megalomaniacs who destroyed lives and everything. But that happened. Austria kind of conquered the whole of Italy and ruled it for decades. But apparently that isn't megalomania. Prussia expanded massively. But apparently that isn't megalomania. But no, Napoleon is megalomania. How dare he do these things? All of this is interesting and, you know, the, the debate still goes on about all these things, but the film has no interest or time or, frankly, ability yeah. to deal with any of these issues. It, it can't, it doesn't, it has no interest. You know, it's a debate that happens for historians. It's not in the film. It has no interest in uh, legacy either, I think. Um, it implies its importance with that three million people dead and here's a list of battles, but that's immediate you know in these years in these decades three million people died thanks to him there's no there's nothing about and the world went on to change and very whatever you know which, which you might expect from another film would have another little page of text at the end saying here's the legacy you know it's all immediate this is what happened right now yes um part of the reason why i asked that question is i remember having this conversation with Jeanette van Sandeau, uh saying something oh these british imagine naming a, a, a train station, you know, uh, Waterloo. Think of all, you know, the French people who must visit. And the first thing you see is like, you know, a reminder <laughs> of your failures. And and she says, oh, well, I don't mind that much. After all, we have the Gare d'Austerlitz. <laughs> yeah, so so that's what kind of made me think about, you know, this, this perspective. And also, a, you know, I was having a quick uh, glance through, through Wiki before talking to you. And ostensibly, the response in France has been atrocious to the film. So if, if it's yes. been mixed yeah. in Britain, it's been atrocious in France, right? And I did wonder if, you know, what that had to do with, you know, how each culture continues to view the figure of Napoleon. Another comment from Ridley Scott uh, talking about the French, the frosty French receptions of the film. He said, the French don't even like themselves. <laughs> which is i think maybe quite a british thing to say yes uh, so paul do you have any view on the french reception again i think I th the french op opinion of napoleon is very interesting uh he's a very he has always been a very divisive and ambiguous figure i mean he's you know, obviously he's a massive presence he's shaped so much of you know the french legal system the borders of france the way paris look you know his inference is absolutely everywhere the napoleonic code but, my god yeah. Yes, I mean, which you know still influences you know law across the yes. world in in large parts. People adopted it even you know far beyond anywhere that he he went. Um, but he's 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 never been quite a, a hero, like kind of embraced as a hero. He's very awkward. 
I mean, in part, there's the whole religious aspect that, you know, um, it, historically France is very kind of Catholic and, you know, the right wing has been kind of a bastion of Catholicism. So the right wing has never embraced Napoleon because what he did to the Pope, essentially, he kidnapped mm. him um, and kind of forced him to do what he wanted and, you know, trampled over various laws. I mean, he, you know, he did relax religious laws and everything. He also de-ghettoized the Jews across Europe. So, you know, it, for many, he was kind of a liberator. Mm. Um, but the right wing in France have never liked him their icon is still Joan of Arc that is their go-to kind of icon of French history not Napoleon um, but it, again Napoleon's legacy is he did good things he did bad things and it, it, there is no kind of clear consistent view on him but I think there is a recognition broadly speaking that he is a complex and interesting figure and this is not a complex and interesting yeah version yeah. of him and i think that is the problem it not so much the kind of the particular viewpoint is the fact that it doesn't really have any kind of meaningful thing to say about mm. him and that i think is the issue yes. that however you take him he is more interesting than this yes, film I, presents that, him that, that is the, the that, that i agree with and just out of curiosity how do you rate ridley scott do you rate him at all and and, and... what well, i what I'm about to say, I don't mean this. I I have no interest in. Him. <laughs> I, I I mean I you know I mean I I have nothing against him. You know I I I was trying to think of what sort of films within I don't know the last twenty years of his that I've seen are. And actually, because I've not seen his recent one, I forget the name. It's set in kind of fourteenth century the France. Last That's the one. I I've I had not seen that one. I mean, I love the counselor. I I so I mean you know kind of. Uh, Alien, Blade Runner, Talman Louise, he does have a whole run of kind of mm. um, at least interesting films. Uh, yes, the trouble is that I, the, the historical ones that I tend to think of, one are Gladiator, which is if you're going to do history in a kind of a Gladiator is a, 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 an exceedingly well tooled, well made film. Mm. And it, it, it does everything that it needs to. And it, it, it's in its own way, I think, an excellent, kind of self contained, really good, entertaining film. I really didn't like uh, Kingdom of Heaven. No, I didn't either. Uh, which again was 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 filled with kind of lots of beautiful images, but it had a kind of a, a kind of like an anti personality mm. in the form of Andalando Bloom as this sort of sucking vortex of nothingness <laughs> part of the film, just like yeah. leeching meaning yeah. and charisma. It's just my uh, God, how can you base a film around that uh, performance? Mm. God, but, but again, it's sort of history. Again, but again, it. That is a much better historical film, I think, in terms of world building than this yes, Napoleon mm. film. And in Gladiator also is kind of, fan, I think you know, I, it's not a, it's not a great profound masterpiece. I don't think it has anything really to say, but it's I think it's exceptionally well put together. Uh, Gladiator went through, uh, which my is mind. sort of what I was, sorry, I was sort of expecting that with Napoleon, and it and it wasn't. Mm. Sorry, no, no, sorry, uh, Gladiator was going through my mind while I was watching this, thinking thinking of the big personalities. And I mean, that film, mm. they repeat so often, you know, win the crowd, shows the crowd. And I yes. wish there was some winning the crowd in this film, you know. Yes. And you think yes. about Joaquin exactly. Phoenix in Gladiator and, you know, he's got, he's got a, a secondary role, but, and, he, and he, he kind of, he doesn't do much at points. But what you get from his grumpiness and his scowling and all that is, is so rich and you feel everything's yes. going on. And, and here, Napoleon, in some ways, is played in fairly similar, you know, kind of similarly. And you don't feel any, you know, as you were saying, Jose, the, the sense of who he is and what his character is and what he's thinking, you don't get in this. Mm. It brings me, I, one thing I wanted to pick up is something I think, Jose, you said very early on about the, the film, the way that Napoleon moves through time 
the way it kind of like progresses and cuts in between like whole years disappear in between things which i felt was a, a real issue for me that it didn't make it enough meaning and purpose mm. behind how and where it was cutting and you were losing time um i think even something like gladiator where you have his when um the um God, whatever his name is, either the character or the actor. I've forgotten everything. Maximus Decimus That's the one. When, let's stick with Maximus. <laughs> when he's kind of when he's remembering his when he's remembering his past, and you get those kind of visions of his kind of hand going through the corn, and that the cutting is so precise and it's so limited, you get a very clear sense of past and present and what it means. Mm. There's a kind of reflection on what is lost in the past and what he's trying to kind of get, and you know. Mm all the rest of it. In Napoleon, there's no reflection on the passing of time. Yes. And that is something that so many of the other Napoleon films, I think, especially the Gulls film does so pertinently, is reflect on it, the passing of time on screen. And when it kind of moves through time, it's so other versions are kind of so more precise in what they are trying to do by moving through time in the way they do. A, a cliche in Napoleon films, which is often used as a moment for that, is... Uh, the exile in Elba, right? Mm. You know, which I was expecting a moment of reflection, of sadness, of looking at the past and how did I get here? But there was none of that. I mean, I, yeah. I or I didn't get that in that scene. That was with the young girls. Yeah, kind of. That was St. Helen. Oh, that was St. Helen. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. I, but yes, no, sorry, go on. No, I mean, both, but I mean, again, El, you know, his, his first exile on Elba, it's like blink of an eye, like, like four or five shots. Mm. Again, no sense of context or how any of that worked and similarly with St Helena I, I wanted more time there again that's the very I mean uh, Monsieur N the Antoine de Conde film is entirely set on Helena and shot on Helena which is St Helena which is very rare mm. and it's 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 not a particularly good film but the first shots where Napoleon lands and these huge waves are just like mm. bursting up the cliffs behind them as he's shaking hands with the governor. And it's like, what this is, this is why you go to location to shoot that. It's a, like amazing shot. Mm. Um, and uh, the only other film which does it was, well, so Gons wrote a screenplay. It was the sixth film set on St. Helena, which is an astonishing screenplay. Like it's a, he described it as a Titanic bourgeois melodrama. So it's kind of like this great figure brooding on kind of like kind of the loss of empires. And then it ends with his death. And there's these kind of visionary passages of kind of waves, like climbing up the cliffs in slow motion and hallucinations and visions and all the rest of it. Um, St. Helena is a fantastic place for someone to reflect on the past. And again, it was virtually nothing in the Scott film. And I, surely that is the moment when you can look back on things. And if you've not, if, you know, if you've not had time to reflect on the way, as this film has not, give it an extra five minutes there mm -hmm. and do something, give us some sense of what, it, even what does the character think of himself? I don't know what the film thinks of him. What does the character think of himself? Mm -hmm. But even, I, I didn't get even that. Uh, he, he seems from to accept scene. something about himself at that point because he tries to claim that he's the one who burned down Moscow, and the young girl says it's common knowledge that you didn't, that they did it to themselves. So he's trying to. He wishes he would like to sell this idea of himself, even to these two young girls, as this man, this so, figure, and he wasn't. So building a legend is mm. yeah, but that's not a reflection. Well, I suppose it can be a little bit of a reflection on the past. No, but it, it gives you really some sense of character, though. I mean, the thing about Elba, which is so disappointing, is you want you, it, it. It just in a blink of an eye, he writes, "It's been three hundred days. I've been here. I want to come home." <laughs> and you're like, "Why couldn't I see him for ten seconds 
being furious <laughs> or upset or longing or calculating. He just kind of he looked a bit grumpy and pissed off, and then he's off on a boat again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I said one the um, the lines about uh, with, with the children in the Scott film that is a scene in Gonse's screenplay because it's a it's, it's a scene in the book that that girl on screen who was Betsy Balcom who Napoleon stayed with her family whilst his lodge was being built on St Helen he stayed with that family for a few months. Uh, and he did interact with her, and she wrote a lovely book about him, saying, you know, he was such an interesting kind of man. And but again, it makes nothing of the fact that Napoleon's son is—he never sees his son again. Yes. And in all of the other films, all of the other films, that is not only just mentioned but made something of. The point of Napoleon's playing with these children is his real child is thousands of miles away, and he will never see him again in his life. Mm. Uh, a lot. Especially as this film has made so much of the idea that he needs an heir, he wants an heir, and he finally has yes. one, and then it's almost immediately it forgotten. Yes, uh, and it's. I mean, this the so the Gaulle screenplay was readapted uh, by Lupu Pick uh, for a German film, which is called Napoleon and Saint Helena, um, which is again, it, it is nothing like the Gaulle screenplay. It's a very ordinary film, but it has a lovely moment when. Uh, Napoleon is kind of setting up in his house and a box arrives and he unpacks the box and it's a sco- it's a bust of his son and he picks it up out of the crate and he's so happy and then he's so desperately sad and he's kind of holding this bust in his hands mm. and there's just this close-up of his face and there's so much weight of meaning because all he has left of his son is this, this dead kind of lump of marble mm. and it's like his... Oh, there's so much longing and it's, it's the best scene of the film mm. and I wanted just... Even just a hint of that, even if it was, you know, with uh, the two girls, just some sense of the sense of generations and, again, like kind of the passing of time and where his legacy is, mm-hmm. it, you know. It almost wants to make it look like he has no legacy in, in that scene. Like the, to, to mm. choose to round off the film with this thing about him wanting to be remembered a certain way and being disabused of that notion, no one's going to remember you like that. To, to choose that to be the way it signs off and then he just dies is. And, and then you and then you go, but it, this is two hundred years ago, and you're making a film about him now. A little respect, you know. Well, <laughs> okay, um, he's still important. He <laughs> has a legacy. Why are you making a film about him otherwise? You know. So we've trashed the film for about an hour. <laughs> so, <laughs> so are there any redeeming values to it? So you know, again, you know, I I thought that it was. Uh, well, I agree with I agree with you, Paul. But nonetheless, I want to get at well. What made it so entertaining? Yeah, why was or was you know? Yeah, I kind of I think that's an interesting yeah, thing yeah. maybe to to end on really because it, it 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 lacks complexity. You know, some of the the scenes feel a bit kind of uh, they lack finesse. Uh, you know, but nonetheless, you know, what is it about this film that meant that neither you nor I looked at our watch for two hours and 40 minutes. Uh, that is a, that is an accomplishment, I think, mm-hmm. you know, because in so many yes. much shorter films, you're, you're, you know, you're looking even as you're being entertained. So any positive thoughts about this <laughs> film? <laughs> was it just the hats? <laughs> <laughs> it was, I mean, again, it's, it's sort of, it, it's all perfectly competent. I mean, it's sort of, it's perfectly competent from beginning beginning to end, and it, I, I think perhaps also the fact that it never reflects upon itself really at all sort of keeps you going through it. 
because it, it never asks you to look at what's going on too carefully, because perhaps if you did, you'd be more disappointed. You'll be more distracted <laughs> by what's going on at this moment. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking, I, 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 I know, uh, Jose, recently you were reading a lot of uh, Stefan Zweig yes. uh, novels. May I please recommend his almost exact contemporary, but in my view, superior writer, Josef Roth, R-O-T-H, um, okay. And he, uh, Radetzky March is his most famous book. He did actually write a book um, about Napoleon. Um, and it's a, it's a very, it's not a particular, it's not one of his best ones. But the way it is divided up, and the, I mean, Rot is a, an extraordinary writer. He keeps you going, but keeps doing astonishing things, like in a sentence. Mm. The way he'll, the whole thing will suddenly turn just in a sentence is astonishing. And his Napoleon book, his, uh, his chapters are often just one paragraph. And mid-scene, the scene will be like kind of 10 chapters. And the fact that he breaks it up into paragraphs is so significant because, you know, like something falls to the floor and Napoleon looks at it, end of chapter, next chapter. It's it's like a, you would have to do that in a film like a, a dissolve or a break or something. Mm. And this film never had that, mm. which was both an advantage and then it kept moving, but also a disadvantage. And then it kind of denied itself any chance to make how it was going forward through time meaningful. It kind of, it kept... It was like it kept like all its balls juggling in the air, mm. which is fine, but it wasn't doing anything. There wasn't there was no payoff to the trick, as it were. Even an accident would have been interesting, but the fact there were no accidents at any point, fine. You get to the end of the film and you've not looked at your watch, but <laughs> that is in itself a kind of problem. I almost sort of wanted like some ruptures, some breaks somewhere to think. Okay, well, this is an interesting rupture. Okay. <laughs> it's it's sort of it's too. The smoothness, just the kind of the endless steady pace was a it's, a, it's the reason I didn't look at my watch, but it was also one of my real problems with the film. Okay. I, I, don't, I've, I don't know if I've articulated that coherently. <laughs> no, you have. Um, yeah. <laughs> Mike, do you have any? Yeah, well, as I, as I suggested, um, there, are, there are a few scenes that the film comes alive for me, which particularly a couple of those battle scenes. I think this is, this is really properly economical filmmaking um in the way that it's it's uh, building tension and and giving me kind of all the information that i need just at the right moment to say here's what here's the the, the army that may be coming here's how we're hiding and so on and so forth that stuff really worked for me um and you know, I, I, it put it in contrast with everything else the film was doing which i suppose you could also say is economical um but i kind of would more refer to it as shorthand you know, so mm. that, like I say, that stuff with Egypt, the stuff with the relationship. Like, I think the thing, the thing with the relationship is you just get these shots of um, Josephine with this you know, sort of low cut, low cut dresses that she's wearing, and you go, "Wow, she's got a fantastic pair of tits." And you go, "Like that's that seems to be the way the film is condensing the attraction." Mm. You know, <laughs> I think uh, maybe that's just my personal prejudice about Vanessa Kirby's tits. Uh-huh. Um, but I think she's that kind was of the fashion of the day. Sh- the I think she's kind of shown off in that yeah. way. Um, and the thing with Egypt, you know, it's, it's it's done in shorthand. It's he's shot at the pyramids, and we just know that he took Egypt and so on. Um, so you know, it worked for me at times, and it didn't work for me at other times. Um, but as I said to you, I I did check my watch, and I did find myself bored, and I kind of was thinking, where is where is the drive? Where are we ultimately going? And and when you move from, you know, the film is constantly bringing up. Uh, uh, titles of you know, 1799, 1812, here we are, here we are, here we are, this is the Battle of So-and-so, this is the conference with so-and-so. And you're like, what led us here? You know, And where are we going next? The, the, the kind of, 
I, I don't want to say it felt like reading a Wikipedia page. I think that's too dismissive. But it felt like here's just the list of things that happened in his life. Let's move through yes. them. Um, didn't feel motivated. Um, so uh, that's my ultimate answer. Like it, it, there are points that works, but most of the time I wanted much more. We're going to give you the last word, Paul. Oh dear! I have too. I, I have. I have too many words, and I have no words. Uh, I. I mean, I. Oh. Do you think it will last? Do you think it will linger? You know. Do you think people no. will remember this? No. no, I don't think so. I'm very depressed about everything that I've read about the film, both for good and bad. I think all of the crit- the criticisms that it's generated is so missing like the main points either for pros or cons about the film and it, it, it just sort of it's such a kind of depressing swirl of kind of nothingness around mm. the film which itself is not worth any of the, the, the fuss of the criticism of historians or anyone I mean, it just I, it doesn't have enough to make you have a strong opinion about it which is <laughs> well if you want to have a strong opinion uh then you know by all means see abel Gans's napoleon and read uh paul's wonderful uh book on it called the revolution for the screen abel Gans's uh, napoleon so thank you very much for joining us paul well thank you very much for for letting me be here <laughs> thank you. it's lovely to have you i so, learned an awful lot uh we are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at Eavesdrop Movies, and um, Blue Sky, eavesdropping.bsky.social. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks, Paul. Mm-hmm.